You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, we are uh, from now until Easter. We're looking at John 13 through 17. This section of scripture is often called the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse because it's the last night that Jesus had with his disciples before his death. Now, Jesus knew on that night that he was about to die. He knew that he would be raised from the dead and he knew that he would, 40 days later, return to the Father. But the disciples had no category for any of that. That's why on their way to Jerusalem, to this upper room, James and John pull Jesus aside and they ask him, hey, can we sit on your right and your left in your glory? That's what they thought was gonna happen. They thought Jesus was gonna set up an earthly kingdom and then they would rule with him. But that is not how things are gonna go. And so Jesus has pulled them together to prepare them for what is actually gonna happen. You ever had a vision for something that didn't go the way you thought it would? Uh, The summer after I graduated high school, a friend of mine came to me with a plan. He asked me if I wanted to go to him, with him to Oklahoma, to a skydiving school. We would drive there and we would get certified, which means we would do like 25 jumps under supervision and then we would be able to jump out of a plane on our own with no supervision. In my whole life, I had never heard a better idea. (laughs) It sounded glorious and it was. We went up there, we used all of our money for this school, so we literally ate like turkey, like deli meat and bread, and that's it, no, not even enough money for mayonnaise. And, uh, and so we get there, and we go through this class, and then we, we get to jump. Now, you've probably seen tandem jumps where there's like an instructor strapped to you, and, and you're kind of just along for the ride. That's not what we did. Uh, we did these static line jumps. So there's basically a cord attached from me to the plane so that after a short free fall, the chute deploys automatically. But even so, you're out there by yourself on your first jump. So cool. <laughs> the best part to me was the dismount. So there's this tiny little plane. It's got a wing, of course, a little strut that goes up to the wing. And so you sit, you sit on the side of the plane, your feet hanging out, and you kind of step out You grab that strut and you work your way up and then you just hang from it for a little while until you you fall back. I was an 18-year-old boy man hanging from a plane in midair. I was Ethan Hunt. It was awesome. I was awesome until I wasn't. They want you to land on this little bullseye thing on the ground, but I... I I could never find that from 3,000 feet up in the air. You're on a radio with a ground crew and they're they're telling me like, steer here, go right and left. And I've just navigationally couldn't do it. I landed like fields away from the land. They came and picked me up in a van. It's it's the walk of shame, the ride of shame. On our second jump, my my friend, Stephen, when he opened his chute, his lines were tangled, which is not good. It means the chute doesn't open all the way and you've gotta, you gotta do something about it. So I hear on the radio, they're trying to walk him through it, telling him various things to do to untangle the lines. None of it's working. And then I hear them say, okay, Stephen, listen to me carefully. We're gonna need you to pull your emergency chute. This is our second jump <laughs> ever. 
If he doesn't get this right, he is, he is toast. This is actually a pretty serious situation. And so all of the radio attention is on my buddy, which means I am just like floating away into the next county. <laughs> I have no idea where I am. He made, it, he made it down okay. You know, they told us in the class that this was a dangerous activity. They, they walked through all of the things that could go wrong, but it, none of it really registered with us. You know why? Well, besides the whole frontal lobe formation thing, we had a vision for how great this was gonna be and we didn't really wanna hear anything that didn't line up with that vision. Jesus told the disciples over and over what the stakes were. He told them that following him meant dying to themselves, laying down their lives and taking up their cross. He told them that he was gonna die he was going to suffer and die, and he would be raised from the dead, but no matter how many times I told him, they didn't understand it. You know why? Because it didn't fit with their vision of messianic victory and glory. Anyone hear it? Couldn't hear it. We too have plans, plans for a life, plans that include comfort and success and pleasure those plans might be fine, but they can make it difficult to hear what God is saying to us about the way of Jesus and his kingdom. We're trying to build these little earthly kingdoms, but what if the kingdom of God is about a life of humility and sacrifice and service to others? What if following Jesus means being unnoticed and unappreciated? Would you want to hear that? Could you hear that? In this passage, Jesus is setting before the disciples and us a vision for life. It's not a life that's about our glory or our little kingdoms. It's a life that's about the glory of God and his kingdom. And so in this text, which is really kind of an introduction to the full teaching in the upper room, uh, we're going to see the glory of God in three ways. And all of this is going to get developed over the next few months. But we're going to see the glory of God in the love of Christ. We're going to see the glory of God in our love for one another. And we're going to see the glory of God in our weakness. All right, let's start with the glory of God in the love of Christ. Verse 31, we're in John 13, verse 31. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some black pew Bibles in front of you. It's on page 847 in those Bibles. You can follow along. Verse 31. When he, that's talking about Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself, him in himself and glorify him at once. That's a little confusing. Just safe to say, there's a reciprocal glory going on between the Father and the Son that honestly we, we don't even understand the depths of. That's one of the things John marvels at. But the key phrase is, now is the Son of Man glorified. Uh, glory is a big theme in John's gospel. It means honor, splendor. It can mean to give praise. So in John 1, he says that the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And so... In the words and the works of Jesus, he reveals the glory of God. 
And when people see it and believe in him, they give praise to God. They give God glory. The first miracle in the Gospel of John is the one where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. That's a cool trick. Uh, What John says about it is, is that he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, not everyone who hears the words of Jesus and sees the works of Jesus believes. And one of the reasons they don't believe is because they're seeking their own glory. In John 5, Jesus has a little debate with the religious leaders, and he says, look, I came to you in my Father's name, and you didn't receive me. But somebody will come to you in their own name, speak on their own authority, and you'll receive them. Why why is that? It's because that's the game they play. They're interested in getting and receiving and giving glory from one another. And Jesus asks them point blank, how, how could you possibly believe in me if you're receiving glory from one another and not seeking the glory that comes from the only God? You see, when we think about glory, our glory especially, we're, we're, we're thinking about taking it, getting it from others. For Jesus, glory is tied up with God and not man. And that's the key to understanding what he's about to say. So let's look at it. Verse 31, again, when Judas had gone out, it's interesting, in verse two, sorry, a little side here. In verse two, John says that Satan had put it in, or the devil put it in Judas to betray Jesus. And then in verse 26, he says that Satan entered into Judas. And now in verse 31, it says Judas went out. That's what happens. When darkness comes in, when darkness takes over in someone's life, they always leave the light of fellowship. I've seen it happen dozens of times. Neither here nor there. All right, when Judas went out, he set in motion a plot that led to the arrest and the trial and the death of Jesus. And so that's what Jesus means when he says, now is the son of man glorified. Now that the dominoes are falling, He's thinking about his impending death and what's gonna come after that. This phrase, the son of man, is a pretty loaded phrase. In normal usage, it just means a human. And so in that sense, it speaks of the humanity of Jesus. But Jesus means much more than that in this verse. Uh, When Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, it's, it's a reference, among other things, to Daniel 7. Uh, Daniel was taken captive with all the other Israelites into Babylon. And in his captivity, in his exile, he has a dream, a vision of four beasts coming up out of the waters. They are evil and destructive. And he's told that the four beasts represent uh, kings and their empires. And in the vision, the, the beasts are destroyed, their dominion is taken away. And then he has another vision And I'll just read to you from Daniel 7. He said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is a pretty cool dream. 
Daniel sees a son of man, a human, who ascends to God in the clouds, who conquers the beasts and rules, sits on a throne and rules the earth. So when Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified, the disciples would absolutely be thinking about Daniel 7 and they would be super pumped about that because they want to conquer the Rome beast and restore Israel to her glory. And there's reasons they think that, but that's not what Jesus is thinking about. Jesus is thinking about his death. When he's lifted up on the cross, there, then God will be glorified in him. How does that make sense? How can the death of the Messiah bring glory to God? How does that display the splendor of God? Well, you know the phrase, uh, beauty is an eye of the beholder? I think that applies here. When man sees the cross, we don't see beauty and glory. We see shame and failure. But when the father looks upon his son who went willingly to the cross, he sees perfect obedience. He sees unfailing love. He sees the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross of Christ is beautiful because of what it accomplishes. This is how Jesus conquered the greater beasts of Satan and sin and death. This is the victorious glory of God in Christ. When you see the cross uh, in the context of the broader redemptive story, you can, you can get an appreciation for its true beauty and purpose. And, and Daniel's dream actually taps into that story with these images of beasts and the son of man. In the, in the beginning, you know, God made animals and humans to live together in harmony. There was some distinction. Humans were set apart. They were made in the image of God. They were given dominion over the animals and the land. They were given a mission to fill the earth with the glory of God. Uh, but then they were deceived by an animal, by the serpent beast. Uh, the temptation was to seize power on their own, to rule on their own terms according to their own wisdom. The whole created order has been turned upside down in the fall and they're sent into exile. Now, in the midst of all of this, God makes a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he says, there will be a seed of the woman, a human, uh, who will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will strike his heel. And from that moment forward, in the whole biblical narrative, that's what everyone's looking for. Everyone is waiting for the son of man, for the human who will crush the serpent's head. And instead, what you get is a bunch of people acting like animals. You come to Cain, the next generation. Cain is jealous, mad at his brother Abel. And God comes to him and says, Cain, why are you so mad, bro? And he tells him, sin is crouching like an animal. It wants to devour you. You don't have to give in to it, but if you do, it's gonna own you. And Cain does. He gives in to the sin beast and he acts like a beast. He savagely murders his brother. And the descendants of Cain, as you 
play it out, are just, it's just more of the same. Uh, violence and brutality. These are the people that eventually build the Tower of Babel, right? To make a name for themselves. They're seeking their own glory. So fast forward in the story and you come to Daniel, who's in Babylon. And he has this dream of a son of man who's gonna come, who's gonna overcome the beast and rule the earth. And fast forward again to Jesus. And early in Jesus' ministry, he's led out into the wilderness into the exile where he's tempted by Satan, but he doesn't give in. He stands his ground. He overcomes. And now here at the end of his life on earth, um, he says, now the son of man is glorified. Now is the time to crush the serpent. It's exciting. But he doesn't do it like anyone thought he would. The way that he defeats the serpent is he gives up his life. He goes to the cross and there he lets evil do its worst to him. Why? Because he loves us. On the cross, he's taking our place. He's taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven of sin and accepted by God so that we can be cleansed deep down as he promised. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. 40 days later, he ascended on the clouds, sat at the right hand of God. And when he returns from there, his kingdom will come in full. It'll be, as Daniel said, an everlasting dominion, a kingdom which shall never end. All of that is wrapped up in this little phrase, now the Son of Man is glorified. It shows us the beauty, the purpose, the power of the cross. Jesus is not just telling his disciples what's gonna happen. He's telling them how to understand it when it happens. When they see his pain, his suffering, his death, They are not to interpret it as defeat. They are to interpret it as his glory. When they see that, if they understand it rightly, then they will understand the nature of the kingdom. Then they will understand the love of God toward them in Christ. And if they get it, then they'll see how the kingdom grows even after he leaves. That's where Jesus turns his attention to next. So in these first couple of verses, we see the glory of God and the love of the Son. But now Jesus shifts to when he leaves, how will people see the glory of God then? Well, they'll see it in our love for one another. Look at verse 34. 33, we'll pick up there. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you. So this, when I'm gone, this, this is what I want you to pay attention to, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In the Upper Room Discourse, at least five times, Jesus says, the one who loves me is the one who keeps my commands. And then he says, here's my command, that you love one another. 
Christianity is not an individual sport. We follow Jesus in community. The evidence that we love God is seen in our love for one another. Uh, John Ortberg has this great line in one of his books, I don't remember which, but the line is, uh, love me, love my ragdolls. Love me, love my ragdolls. Uh, the line comes from his uh, sister. When his sister was young, she had this doll, this rag doll, that she loved very much, too much. Uh, it just, she wore it out with her love. And no matter how ragged it got, she loved it all the more. So the, the value of the doll, which anyone else, was the beauty in the eye of the beholder deal, if anybody else looked at the doll, they would just see this ragged mess. So the value of the doll is not in its appearance. The value of the doll is completely derived by how much it is loved by this little girl. And he says, if you wanted to be sister, friends with my sister, you had to be friends with her doll. It was a package deal. In the same way, Ortberg says, we are all God's rag dolls. We're not defined by our raggedness, we're defined by his love for us. And to love God is to love his rag dolls. It's a package deal. This is how the world knows that we belong to Jesus. It's how the world knows that Jesus is for real and was sent by God, by our love for one another. Now, Jesus says this is a new commandment. Obviously, he's aware of Leviticus 19. Like, he knows the law. In Leviticus 19, the law is love your neighbor as you love yourself. So love has always been a thing in God's economy. And so what is it that makes the commandment new? Well, one way that the commandment is new is the degree of love. This command is based on a love that the world has never seen before. Look what he says. He says, just as I have loved you, that's how you are to love one another. So I'm to love my neighbor as myself. That's a certain kind of love, but to love someone as Christ has loved me, that is an altogether different depth and quality of love, something the world has never seen before. So what does it mean to love as he's loved us? Well, you take that phrase and you can think of so many stories and ways that Jesus loved people. But we could just start with what's happened in the upper room when he washed their feet. Just thinking about that scene would give us a little insight into the kind of love that he's talking about. Jesus loved them and loves us by humbling himself. He uses his authority and his power to go low and to do the lowliest thing, to serve in the lowliest way. It's that kind of love. Jesus loves us by being patient with us. Like Peter, we say so many stupid things. We speak out of ignorance and pride and presumption. We're in a hurry as if everything depends upon our effort and will. And he's patient with us. He loves us by not giving us everything we want. Like he discerns what we actually need, what's good for us. He loves us by confronting us. You know, with Peter, he pushes through the resistance. He pushes through the facade to deal with what's really going on in his heart. He loves us in that way. He loves us by laying down his life for us. 
That's what the foot washing points to. C.S. Lewis distinguished between uh, two kinds of loves, need love and gift love. Need love is where I love you because you do something for me or just because it makes me feel good. Um, We all have need love. We all do this. It's not always bad, but gift love is markedly different. Gift love is where I show affection, give affection to you, or I do something for you, no strings attached, no expectations of anything in return. It's just a gift. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. He's like, you know, if a man meets a woman and he says, uh, uh, I want to get it right. He goes, if a man says, I cannot live without her. That sounds romantic, right? It's really needy, though. If you're over 40, you remember the line, you complete me. It's need love. I need you to complete me. Gift love is different than that. If a man meets a woman and says, I long to give myself for her, to do whatever I can for her good. That's better, isn't it, girls? (laughs) Yeah, that's gift love. No strings attached. Jesus was not sitting in the upper room thinking, you know what I need? You know what made me feel really good? Is to get down there and wash those guys' feet. Feet is never part of need love. (laughs) Universally, you know? He didn't do it for his sake because it makes him feel good. He did it for theirs. That's gift love. Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's a gift. This is how we are to love one another. There's some distinction, right? We can't atone for people's sins, but we can love them with the same kind of humility and sacrifice. What does that look like? Well, I think it means that we can be interrupted by the needs of others without being irritated about it. We can give people our attention and not make the conversation about us. We can do the lowly task that nobody wants to do and not mind that nobody noticed we did it. That's the hard part. We can move toward people who are not like us. We can ask for help. Part of what it means to be in a loving community is not just to give help, but to receive help from others. Loving people can ask for help. They're not too proud. We could lay down our life for someone if we were called to, right? I mean, Jesus said there's no greater love than this that we lay down our life for our friends. You know, here's the thing. In our world, you gotta pursue your dreams. I mean, that's, that's what life's about. You gotta figure out your passions and you gotta pursue your dreams at all costs. If you give up on your dreams, I mean, like you're giving up on the meaning of life itself. But in the kingdom of God, it's, it's different. We can give up our dreams even. We can give up our comfort, we can give up our success, we can give up our goals, we can give up our money and our time, we can give up our very lives for the good of others. 
because that's real glory. That's what life with Jesus is really about. How's that sound to you? You see, for most of us, that doesn't really fit in with our plans. And it makes it hard to hear what Jesus is saying. We're here, we're at church, we agree, it sounds good in theory, all we need is love and all that. Love is love, the whole thing. But out there, in reality, we're likely to gloss over the command and get focused on what we think life is really about. Peter is a prime example of this. Peter shows us the glory of God even in our weakness. Look at verse 36. Jesus has said, where I'm going, you can't come. Love each other. And this is Peter's response. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Doesn't mention the love thing. Just, just goes right back to the, he has some things to talk about on this other subject. Where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Just chill out. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you though? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The irony is, it's just almost comical. Jesus is talking about how he's going to lay down his life for them. Peter can't hear it because he's busy talking about how he's gonna lay down his life for Jesus. He wants to make sure Jesus knows he is all in, committed. He's there for him if he needs him, you know. And Jesus says, actually, let me tell you what's really gonna happen, Pete. By morning, you're gonna deny even knowing me three times. And that is what happens. Utter failure. Peter represents us in at least two ways here. Some of us might be tempted to leave here going, okay, love, this is for real. Love is for real. I gotta do, I gotta do this. I gotta love some people better now. And it doesn't matter how well-meaning you are or how zealous you are, you will fail in your own strength. You need help, like divine help. This is a theme that's gonna get developed in the next few chapters, but Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. He gives us the capacity for Christ-like love. This is another way that the commandment is new. It's new because it comes with new power. All right, so we have the command, love one another. We have an example of it, an illustration, just as I have loved you. But we also have the power to do it. I have seen the glory of God on display in this way, in this community, more times than I can count. Just through simple acts of service and generosity and care over, I mean, I'm just looking at some of the faces and stories are coming to mind. One of my favorite conversations ever was I met a guy who uh, had been going to one of our gospel communities. I think he'd been to church a couple times, not a Christian. I met him at a party. And we just 
he was talking to me because he didn't know I was the pastor. So we just start talking. I always hold that fact until, until last. And in the course of the conversation, one of the things he said to me was, he said, you know, I've had a pretty hard life. I've never really understood what it means to be loved, but being a part of this community, these people have taught me what it means to be loved. I have never heard anyone say that before or since, just the way that he put it. That's supernatural, transforming love. This is what Jesus said, that when the world sees it, when they experience it, they're gonna know something is up here. Peter reminds us also how much we need to experience the love of Christ personally. You know, when Peter denied Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly, like it just wrecked him. Can you imagine the shame of that kind of failure? After Jesus was raised from the dead, he went to find Peter, not to rub it in, but to restore him. And he asks Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. They had that little back and forth three times. Same question, same answer, same instruction every time. The point, Peter, if you wanna show me how much you love me, then love my people. That's how, that's how the glory of God is seen and evidenced in your love for one another. This gentle, forgiving, patient love of Christ changed Peter. Peter goes from this guy who's just telling everybody what to do and what he's gonna do in the upper room to later, when you read some of the letters he wrote to the churches, he says things like this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You can't make up a command like that. You have to speak from experience. Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He knew something about that. Peter experiences the love of Christ and it absolutely changes him. Has it changed you? Unless you receive the love of Christ, like unless you experience it personally, then you will leave here and you will try to do your best, but you won't be able to sustain it. You can only give what you have. And Jesus is inviting you to come and receive his love. This is the starting point. Receive it. Take it in. From that depth of love you'll have the capacity like never before to love others. Let's ask God to do this in us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.